The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We do know that it's something that the U.S. government has said they've worked for years with folks in Ukraine to up their defenses. In some ways, the the proof is in the successes we're seeing. Even when there have been successful cyber attacks during the course of this conflict, we're seeing that the Ukrainian networks are proving to be very resilient. So there are, are workarounds, things are coming back online quickly when they've been knocked off. And there was another really interesting incident back in kind of, I think, the middle of April, when Ukraine announced that they had disrupted an in-progress cyber attack by Russia's military, that it that would have, if it had been successful, would have caused another blackout. Now, that's that would have been the third, right? So Ukraine has already suffered two blackouts at the hands of the Russian military, and they stopped the third one. So, you know, knowing what we're seeing, it certainly seems like their capabilities are increasing over time. I'm Scott R. Anderson. And this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 24th, 2022. For years, Russia has both officially and unofficially used cyber tools to ruthlessly advance its international agenda. For this reason, many expected Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine to also kick off a new and brutal era of international cyber warfare. Instead, cyber measures have only played a small part in the overall conflict compared to more conventional capabilities leading many to ask whether Russian cyber capabilities and the role of cyber in the future of warfare more generally might well have been exaggerated. To dig into these issues, I sat down with University of Virginia law professor Kristen Eikensier, who wrote a recent article on the topic for the American Journal of International Law. We discussed possible explanations for the limited role that cyber capabilities have played in the conflict, whether that might change in the next stage of the conflict, and what it all means for the future of cyber measures in warfare. It's the Lawfare Podcast for May 24th. Kristen Eikensier on the cyber war that wasn't in Ukraine. So Kristen, let me ask you to start out by taking us back in time a little bit. We know at this point that Ukraine and Russia have been in armed conflict since February, late February of this year, last three months or so. But take us back to January or December of this year, even a little bit earlier what did we know about Russian cyber operations or think we knew about Russian cyber operations up to that point from experiences with Estonia, with Ukraine following 2014, from other cases? And what were a lot of the expectations going into what at that point seemed like a very likely conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Russia is a very competent cyber power and one that has been willing to deploy its considerable 
capacities against states in the past, particularly including Ukraine. So I think in the lead up to the Russian invasion, or perhaps we should say further invasion of Ukraine after uh, the annexation of Crimea, there was a lot of concern both about what Russia might do with respect to Ukraine in particular and about the possibility that it would lash out against other states. So concerns about you know, the effects on Ukraine, about spillover from attacks on Ukraine to other countries, and about direct attacks on countries that might be supporting Ukraine. So, you know, the United States has been on the receiving end of Russian cyber attacks a number of times. The most significant recent one was probably a year and a half ago, the Solar Winds incident. And in that case, Russia had launched a supply chain attack against a company called Solar Winds that enabled it to access hundreds of companies and US government agencies. And this was ultimately espionage, it seems. But you know, the United States has proven incapable of fending off, stopping in advance Russian cyber attacks in the past. And Russia had had particular success with respect to Ukraine. Some of the most damaging cyber attacks we've seen in recent years have been attacks by Russia against Ukraine. So in uh, 2015 and 2016, Russian cyber actors linked to the, the government had turned off the power in Ukraine twice. And then in 2017, Russian government hackers launched uh, malware called NotPetya, which targeted Ukrainian accounting software, but ultimately spread far beyond Ukraine and caused more than $10 billion in damage. So it hit companies like FedEx, Maersk, and it spread all around the world. So in terms of concern about attacks against Ukraine spreading, that was, I think, the fear that a lot of people had, that we would see something like NotPetya. And we had seen Russia you know, lash out at countries with which it was displeased before. So it's widely suspected of launching um, distributed denial of service attacks against Estonia more than a decade and a half ago at this point. And also when it invaded Georgia in 2008, uh, there were cyber attacks that accompanied that invasion as well. So you sort of put all these things together and you know that Russia is a very capable cyber actor. It's been willing to, you know, take actions, including really escalatory, really disruptive, really dangerous ones against Ukraine and other countries in the past. And so I think there was a lot of fear about attacks on Ukraine, about spillover from attacks against Ukraine, and also about direct attacks on allies of Ukraine. So we've got this real set of expectations going into this potential armed conflict that have been brewing for a while, consequences for Ukraine, consequences for other states in the region, consequences potentially for the United States coming out of this Russian cyber capability and a willingness to use it, led a lot of experts, including folks on this podcast, to say that we might see a major, major cyber element of this conflict with worldwide implications. Three months in, that just hasn't manifested. Doesn't mean there isn't cyber activity, but not at the level we might have expected or some might have expected going into this conflict. Tell us, what is the role that cyber has played in the Ukraine conflict so far, and how has it matched up to those expectations? So cyber has definitely played a role. I certainly don't want to give any kind of impression that there has been no cyber activity accompanying the invasion, because there definitely has been. I mean, we saw in the lead up to the invasion I mean, back in January and in February that there were reports about wiper malware being deployed against Ukrainian government entities, banks, things like that, to, you know disrupting access to websites of those kinds of entities. So there's been sort of that kind of activity, and that predated the invasion and then has continued. 
but nothing along the lines, nothing as nearly destructive as NotPetya, which was also wiper malware. And so that's one aspect. We've seen that happen, but it hasn't been as successful. There have also been some limited cases that we know about. I also want to be very clear that that there's still a lot of fog of war and, and cyber components of war are particularly foggy for reasons we can talk about. But we've also seen some indications that Russia, particularly after the invasion, has tried to coordinate some of its cyber operations with its kinetic operations. So there was an incident where they targeted Ukrainian telecom companies with cyber attacks and also very similar time frame bombed a, a TV tower. So there's some coordination. But the most significant successful cyber incident that we've seen to date was a cyber attack against a company that provides satellite internet services for uh, Ukraine. And that was launched according to an attribution done by the U.S. and a bunch of European allies in the middle of May, uh, done within about an hour of the invasion. And it was designed apparently to knock out communications to Ukrainian military, but it actually did spread across borders. So ended up ended up taking out wind turbines in uh, Germany. And so, it, you know, we, we are seeing some of the cyber kinds of cyber attacks that one might have expected to accompany the invasion, but just not anything as destructive or even as disruptive as was feared at the outset. So in this very useful piece that you've put together for the American Journal of International Law, uh, its Unbound series, which which is always a favorite read uh, of mine when dealing with the international law and policy implications of some of these fast-moving events and developments, you kind of put forward three theories why what we're seeing in the cyber realm in Ukraine isn't quite what we might have expected going in, uh, at least in terms of scale, if not in terms of actual character of cyber activities. And I kind of want to walk through those three theories, because I think they're a really useful framework for thinking about both what we've seen so far and, and what might come next. The first theory, which I think you deal with most handily, or, or you seem the most skeptical of, although I don't think you dismiss it outright, is the prospect of deterrence. In your sense, what are the reasons to think that Russia may have been deterred in using some of its cyber capabilities we've seen it use in the past? And what are reasons to think that that might not be the explanation that that's most appropriate here? So deterrence, I would would frame as a a choice. Well, let's set aside deterrence by denial, which is the idea that, you know, an adversary will choose not to launch attacks because they don't think they'll succeed. I don't think that's the kind of deterrence we're talking about here. I think that the kind of deterrence that might be at issue is Russia choosing not to uh, launch cyber attacks. And, you know, they could have made that choice for a number of reasons. If we're talking about deterrence in particular, then I think what we're talking about is them choosing not to launch cyber attacks, major disruptive cyber attacks for fear of escalation or for fear of the response. And so, you know, as, as you suggested, I'm, a, I'm pretty skeptical of this explanation, but one way you could play it out is to say, you know, Russia has seen what happens when it launches cyber attacks like NotPetya. It has seen attacks spread across borders. And if it is trying to cabin the conflict and keep the United States and NATO from directly attacking Russia, then, you know, there is a concern that if it launched a cyber attack and it got out of control and crossed borders, then that could be the thing that brings NATO into the conflict. NATO has, a, at this point, pretty longstanding policy that 
um, cyber operations could trigger the Article 5 mutual defense commitment. So I think there's there's a possibility that Russia chose to be a little bit more hesitant with respect to cyber attacks because it was trying not to escalate the conflict into a direct one with NATO. But do you think that's a likely explanation? You mentioned that you're skeptical. Why is there a reason to be skeptical about that here? Russia certainly, you know, deterrence seems to be playing a role on both sides, on the conventional military side, certainly. We know the Biden administration has been pretty expressed saying we're trying not to escalate this war as a deliberate policy measure by not directly intervening militarily, among other measures. But is there a reason to think that, that Russia hasn't quite exercise that same constraint in the cyber realm might not fit into the calculus the same way? Well, I think Russia hasn't been terribly deterred by much of what the West has thrown at it, I think. I mean, obviously, there there were enormous threats of sanctions in advance of the invasion in an attempt to forestall the invasion, didn't forestall the invasion. You know, there's, I I think that the parties at this point are operating in a pretty narrow band to try and avoid escalating the conflict further and broadening it beyond Ukraine, the territory of Ukraine. But at the same time, you know, we've seen a lot of action by Russia that was just simply not deterred by everything that the United States and allies could throw at it. So I'm a little bit skeptical that cyber would have been more deterred than the activities we've seen Russia undertaking. Besides that, though, you know, I think basically the the escalation and deterrence dynamics in cyber are not particularly clear. And there've been some academic theories about cyber being escalatory and academic theories about cyber actually being de-escalatory. So I I don't think there's a particularly clearly worked out understanding of how uh, cyber attacks play out and play out within the dynamics of armed conflict. We've got a lot of theories, but part of what makes the, the Ukraine conflict and we'll make it so academically interesting going forward is because you know we're seeing a major cyber power launch a you know, significant invasion, significant armed conflict. And so we're getting to see in real time the role that cyber is playing, and it's not quite what we thought. So I think that will have some lessons for how we understand cyber and deterrence going forward, maybe, if deterrence does end up being the explanation for what we're actually seeing in the conflict. And I'm, again, kind of skeptical. I, I don't know that that will at all be the case. So let's go on to the second explanation that you put forward in your piece that you spend the most time on. I think it's one of the most interesting ones to dig into a bit. And that is the question of defense. The idea that Russia may have been trying to, or at least have contemplated pursuing some of these cyber activities, but either was effectively thwarted by the United States, by Ukrainians, by uh, other involved actors here on the side of the Ukraine opposed to Russia, or that the defenses they've been able to put forward themselves deterred that side of kind of contact, that other deterrence concept you've already alluded to. Tell us a little bit about what we know, although there's a lot we don't know, admittedly, about the type of defense the United States and others have been able to put forward to Russian cyber activities in the context of Ukraine conflict so far and the role that may be playing. So there are a couple different actors I think we need to think about here. So one is obviously the government of Ukraine itself. So as I've mentioned, Ukraine has been the target for major Russian cyber operations for years at this point. So it is a government that has a lot of experience in fending off and dealing with these kinds of attacks. So, you know, all credit to to the Ukrainians for hardening their networks, for having people who are trained, particularly with respect to Russian cyber attacks. So I think that's that's one that's one group. 
other groups, you know, the involvement of the United States and other allies is a little bit murky, but the National Security Agency director and the commander of U.S. Cyber Command, uh, General Nakasone, suggested to Congress recently, you know, he said the United States has worked very hard with Ukraine over the past several years. He mentioned that the that Cyber Command had had hunt forward teams in Ukraine. As far as we know, they're not there now. It would have left before the invasion. But there have been other reports about U.S. government teams being in places in Eastern Europe. So it certainly sounds like, you know, U.S. forces are in the background helping in some capacity. Now, we've obviously seen information playing out on the front pages of, of major newspapers about intelligence sharing from the United States to the Ukrainians as well. So there, there's some assistance coming from the United States and probably not just the United States. There's also assistance coming from companies. So there was an instance when Microsoft discovered wiper malware that was targeting the Ukrainian government. And they shared that with the U.S. government and at the, at the White House's request reportedly, they also shared it with European governments and we've seen other instances, too, where there are other companies that are discovering the wiper malware and assisting Ukraine. So, you know, you've got you've got the Ukrainian government, you've got allied governments, you've got companies. And I'll say also, you know, the Ukrainian government very early in the conflict put out a call for the Ukraine IT army. So you've got sort of volunteer hackers who have allied themselves with the Ukrainian government in some way um, or with the Ukrainian cause but I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that they are in charge of Ukraine's cyber defenses. But we have seen a number of kind of harassing incidents against Russian systems, you know, defacements, taking websites offline, that sort of thing. So the non-state actors here on both sides are also players in the conflict. I want to dig a little bit deeper into this defend forward concept that, that you mentioned, the fact that there may be these teams, likely were um, these teams of... U.S. personnel involved in these activities. Give us a sense of what the Defend Forward strategy we've seen emerge the past few years looks like in the context of a conflict like Ukraine and the activities we expect U.S. You know, cyber operators might be undertaking in the context of this conflict. So the U.S. Defend Forward strategy is started, it was announced in 2018. And it's really the idea of operating outside of US systems and networks to sort of take the fight to the adversary and operate as close to where adversaries are deploying attacks as possible and to kind of get ahead of them, basically. So, you know, I already mentioned General Nakasone saying that there were hunt forward teams based in Ukraine and that they've been in pl other places around Eastern Europe. So, you know, those are those are partnerships that the U.S. government is acting with allies to get better visibility into what adversaries, including Russia, are doing. So, you know, there have been suggestions and, and some you know, deliberate revelations from U.S. government officials about what Cyber Command and these hunt forward teams have done in particular instances and, and other operations by the United States to do things like you know, take down troll farms in advance of elections and, and shut down botnets and that sort of thing. So we know a little bit about what they're doing, but you know, there are very good reasons that we don't know everything. And I suspect this is an area where we might find out more after the fact about what exactly has been happening. If you had to guess, I mean, I would assume that there are persistent ongoing operations to disrupt foreign governments operations against the United States and its allies. But the details of that obviously remain a little bit foggy for now. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Another part of this calculus that you've alluded to already is the question of capabilities, both in, on the Ukrainian side, the fact that we've got a Ukraine that's been dealing with these cyber attacks for many years, and that has the United States and other allied countries providing a lot of support to it, intel sharing, training, resources. How does that sort of support and capabilities, how, how much of that is transferable to Ukraine? Has Ukraine really demonstrated a heightened cyber capability, as far as we can tell, at least? And And how has the United States and other allies been able to support that? And on the other side of the equation is, of course, Russia's own capabilities. We know on the conventional military side of the equation, Russia has proven to be far less formidable than most assessments evaluated going into this conflict. Is the same dynamic playing out on the cyber side or, or is it too soon to judge on that particular front? You know, I think that goes to the question of what is the explanation for the the lack of really big successful attacks that we've seen. So, you know, on the one hand, one ex part of that explanation for why they haven't succeeded or maybe why the attacks weren't launched is a lack of planning and a lack of understanding about the robustness of Ukrainian defenses, right? And that, that does make the cyber piece of this seem a whole lot like the conventional side, right? Those are the same kinds of failures to engage in detailed planning, failures to engage in sort of accurate strategy that we've seen on battlefields all across Ukraine. So I do think that is a completely plausible explanation for what's happening on the cyber side in particular, that this is the same, this is of a piece with everything else we've seen from the Russian military in place in Ukraine now. To your question about, you know, assistance, I'm not in the best position to judge the, the exact capabilities of Ukrainian cyber operators, but, you know, we, we do know that it's something that the U.S. government has said they've worked for years with folks in Ukraine to up their defenses. And, you know, I think in some ways the, the proof is in the successes we're seeing. Even when there have been successful cyber attacks during the course of this conflict, we're seeing that the Ukrainian networks are proving to be very resilient. So there are, are workarounds, things are coming back online quickly when they've been knocked off. And there was another really interesting incident back in kind of, I think, the middle of April when Ukraine announced that they had disrupted an in-progress cyber attack by Russia's military, that it that would have, if it had been successful, would have caused another blackout. Now, that's that would have been the third, right? So Ukraine has already suffered two blackouts at the hands of the Russian military, and they stopped the third one. So, you know, knowing what we're seeing, it certainly seems like their capabilities are increasing over time. And I will say also that they've been admitted as a, a contributing member to the NATO Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. Uh, so, you know, I think there's there's some assistance perhaps flowing there as well. But there's a, a lot of effort, I think, has been put into 
training the Ukraine government to deal with what everyone has known for years as a significant cyber attack, cyber threat directed from Russia against Ukraine. Another factor you highlight in your paper briefly, but I'd love to pull out a little more information from you on, is the role of the private sector in this. You note that a number of major tech companies, Microsoft among them, have really taken steps to shut down vulnerabilities, be more proactive in addressing the terrain on which Russia would be advancing a lot of these cyber measures that it may or may not have considered or be considering. Tell us how that situation has changed. How is the private sector more resilient, more proactive than perhaps it was in 2014, 2015, 2016, when we saw some of these other major cyber actions involving Russia? And and how does that change the terrain on which these sorts of conflicts are taking place? The tremendous capacities of the private sector to deal with cybersecurity threats are certainly not unique to Ukraine, the Ukraine situation, and they're they're not even particularly new. I mean, we've seen companies like Microsoft and some of the cybersecurity companies, Mandiant, CrowdStrike, etc. They have really significant capabilities to detect attacks, to attribute attacks. And so we're, we're seeing that play out in the context of Ukraine. But the, the role and capacities of the private sector, you know, in some ways rivaling those of governments, is, is not a new thing. I think part of why, part of what we're seeing with the Ukraine conflict is that the private sector in general has largely lined up on Ukraine's side on any, you know, on any number of issues. We've seen a huge number of companies pull out of Russia, you know, cease doing business in Russia, all sorts of things, and both in compliance with sanctions and just for reputational reasons. And so I, I think part of what we're seeing here too is the private sector is touting their cooperation and touting their support for Ukraine. So in ways that you know we might not necessarily expect um, so much publicity to be put on those efforts in in other circumstances, here there's both really focused effort and you know a lot of publicity and a lot of media attention focused on those efforts. So the phenomenon itself of private sector playing a major role in detecting remediating threats isn't specific to Ukraine, but it's certainly getting a lot of attention. I think a lot of observers may take away from this experience, at least thus far, a strong sense of confidence. Similar to what we're seeing happening in the conventional military space, where the Russian threat does not loom as large as it did before February of this year, a lot of people may be looking at what's happened in Ukraine and say, Russia is not the dangerous cyber bear that we must not poke that we thought it was. But you note a point of caution in this regard in your piece that I think is very astute and worth playing out here, because you note that the situation in Ukraine is a situation of focused defense, a situation where we see a target that we expect to be the target of hostile cyber activities, and therefore can be more proactive and concentrated and committed in the resources and effort we put towards defending it. That's different from what I'll say, because I don't think you actually use this phrase, but passive defense, the kind of level of defense we take when it's a huge open array of targets. We don't know that anyone is going to particularly be targeted. How much caution should that difference in, in circumstances between, you know, the, the policy focus that Ukraine is right now and the amount of resources and energy we can commit to more general cyber defense, how should that enter into how we evaluate Russia's capabilities in a variety of other circumstances? In other words, how much should we be generalizing the experience of Ukraine to other situations that we may encounter in the future where there's a cyber element of potential conflict with Russia? 
I think we should be cautious about generalizing too much. I think the you know, the limited role that successful cyber operations have played in the conflict so far is, you know, it's a lucky break and it's uh, a, probably a hard fought win by a lot of the network defenders who've been on the ground and responsible for, for stopping these attacks. But at the same time, I think it would be a serious mistake to underestimate Russian capabilities. I mean, Russia has imposed really significant costs on all sorts of entities worldwide with cyber operations in the past, and it could certainly do so again. So I I appreciate you highlighting the point in the paper, which, as you say, I I think part of the defensive lesson that we might draw from the Ukraine conflict is that this is focused defense and it focused both geographically and as a matter of temporally, right? So there were months leading up to the invasion when there were warnings that it was coming. And it's by experienced defenders and the attention of the world is on this conflict right now. So it, it challenges the, the mantra you often hear in cybersecurity that offense dominates defense. And I'm not sure that that's replicable. That doesn't, this doesn't mean that Russia is not a threat in, you know, unpredictable disruptive attacks targeted at other systems around the world, or that they're not a threat with respect to espionage to go back to the solar winds example. But I think it's, it is an interesting case study if the, the answer to why these attacks haven't succeeded is that the defenses did succeed. That's a really interesting example and one that I think, you know, I'm sure has, has a lot of lessons for the network operators and for, for defenders. And I think, as, as you know from the piece, I think also has some, some interesting lessons for international law and policy. I want to get to those lessons. Before we do, though, I want to dip into the third theory that you put forward about to explain what might have happened and not happened in Ukraine. And that is this idea that there may be an optimal role for cyber operations that's different when you're talking about a hot conflict that is very much existing between Ukraine and Russia right now, and the sorts of gray zone conflicts that we're used to observing cyber activities in, a Cold War sort of conflict where there's not open use of military force or open hostilities, and where premiums uh, that cyber activities provide, such as deniability, at least plausible deniability, might have a higher value. Elaborate on that a little bit for us. Why is there a reason to think that Russia may simply not be turning to its cyber tools because it has a different set of tools available in this hot conflict than it has in the various gray zone conflicts it it wages more systematically and more broadly throughout the uh, areas in which it has an interest? Well, I think you explained it really, really quite well, Scott. I, I think the you know the point here, and to be clear, with you know, I appreciate you attributing the theories to me. I'm sort of packaging and, and grouping and, and trying to systematize a lot of the theories that have been floating around in the last couple of months for for what's happening in this conflict. The the Washington Post published a list of, I believe, eleven theories. So I'm you know trying to trying to group these in a way that I think makes sense to draw some lessons for for law, but on the the question of why is Russia, why would Russia be proceeding with bombs and not cyber weapons? To go back to the point we discussed earlier about lack of planning, cyber attacks are difficult and they do require a lot of forward planning. And we don't necessarily think that Russia had engaged in a lot of that planning. So that may have, they may have just been out of position to launch cyber attacks. But the other interesting possibility that's related, which is, as you mentioned, the idea that it's just it's easier it's cheaper if you're willing to drop the bombs then you use the cyber weapons perhaps including you know 
means of compromising systems for things that only cyber can do or that cyber can do more efficiently. And you use the conventional weapons for things that they can do. You could do, you know, you might be able to accomplish the same sort of effect with cyber means, but it would be harder. And then you might not have that capability available if you needed to engage in espionage going forward. So I think it does, as you said, go to the question of what's the optimal role for cyber weapons. And to think about, you know, again, being careful not to generalize too much from this conflict, it is interesting to note that, you know, this conflict did not start with massive cyber attacks, which has been kind of one of the hypotheses for what a conflict by a major cyber power would look like. It just didn't. So I do think that, you know, this is this is one example of how it plays out. It's certainly not the only one, but I think it does mean we need to rethink a little bit how we understand the role of cyber in a conventional conflict. We're seeing a lot of examples of how cyber plays out in, as you said, as I talk about in the paper, kind of gray zone conflicts. And one of the interesting features of this is that many of those gray zone or gray zone-like tactics are things that we're seeing play out in Ukraine as well. We're seeing you know, distributed denial of service attacks and sort of limited attacks that take take out um, systems for a couple of hours and they come back up. We're not seeing things that are sort of qualitatively different or that are destructive. The destruction is coming, you know, as we've all seen very unfortunately from a lot of just horrific conventional attacks. So I want to take this opportunity to look forward a little bit now um, that you've given this, this great assessment of what we've seen so far. And I want to do that in two different levels. First, a little bit more localized and specific. What role should we expect cyber operations to play in the Ukraine conflict moving forward, in your view? We know the conflict is going to a little bit of a different stage now, it seems. Uh, Russia is focusing on the east of the country, where it has already recognized kind of secessionist republics from, from Ukrainian territory, where it's on a little bit more friendly territory in terms of the population for the large part there and has changed its expectations in the short term for the military part of this conflict, although that doesn't necessarily mean it will be satisfied enough to end the other elements of the conflict. So what role will cyber play moving forward, or should we expect cyber to play moving forward, given what we've already seen so far in Ukraine? I'm really reluctant to uh, prognosticate here, but recognizing the you know that I may very well be wrong, I think there there are different possibilities for how this plays out. You know, Russia and Ukraine and the the allies that have been supporting Ukraine are now a couple of months into this conflict. And so, you know, it's possible that whatever planning Russia didn't have time to engage in in advance of the conflict for cyber purposes, maybe it now has the time to engage in that kind of planning. So it's possible we could see an uptick in attacks that are more linked to the combat in the east of the country. I think the other, you know, the U.S. government continues to warn about the possibility of attacks on the United States or European countries as a possible sort of response to the the increasing bite of sanctions that have been placed on Russia. That's a possibility. I think another possibility is kind of lashing out cyber attacks against Sweden and Finland in response to their moves to join NATO. That seems sort of similar to, this is a whole other era in cyber conflict, but to what happened in Estonia, right? Kind of lashing out in response to a policy change that is 
disfavored by Moscow. So, you know, I think there there are any number of directions this could go. And I suspect there's also still a fair amount of espionage going on in the background. And again, I wouldn't underestimate Russia. They are very adept at cyber espionage and have been for some time. So, you know, that that's kind of a background condition that we wouldn't necessarily see, but I would be surprised if it's not continuing. Now let's go to one last question here, kind of at a bigger global level. And this really gets at kind of the takeaway point from your piece. International lawyers and policymakers have spent a lot of time over the last two decades, uh, at least, thinking about how to approach this question of cyber warfare. And a lot of the discussion and focus has focused on the big, big uses of cyber that everyone sees as a possibility, but hasn't really manifested yet. This idea of when does a cyber activity actually become an armed attack that triggers self-defense? When does it become the equivalent of hurling a bomb? But you make the case in your piece that we need to start shifting that focus and really begin digging into other ways cyber may be used that may be more directly relevant to the types of activities and conflicts we see on the horizon. Tell us a little more about that. Where do you think this conflict tells us the work of international lawyers and policymakers around cyber issues needs to go? Where do they need to turn their lens next? I think it's not necessarily a turning of the lens, but just a kind of a doubling down on efforts that are already underway. But the, the basic point is, you know, the idea of a cyber 9-11 or a cyber Pearl Harbor or a really major destructive cyber attack that causes damage akin to an armed attack, those things have gotten a tremendous amount of attention, not just from academics, but also from states over the course of the last few years. And in some ways, those legal discussions are just further along. So it seems like states are, are generally coalescing around a legal standard where, you know, if a cyber attack has a has a is similar in scale and effects to conventional uses of force, then it'll be treated the same way that a conventional use of force would. But there's there's a lot more work to be done to deal with the lower level operations and the the other legal questions that come with those. So this brings up issues like questions of state responsibilities. So we touched on. You know, the role of non-state actors. There have been non-state actors that have allied themselves with both sides of this conflict. Some of the ransomware gangs have sort of pledged allegiance to Russia. There's the Ukraine IT army. So, you know, we need more clarity on uh, both factually and, and also legally on how do you make effective the ideas of state responsibility for the actions of non-state actors. There are also a whole host of legal questions like what counts as an attack for purposes of international humanitarian law? Does an attack on just on data that doesn't cause physical consequences, does that count? So there's, there's a ton more work to be done to make existing international law rules understandable in the cyber context to figure out what those rules are and also to make them effective. And some of those, you know, those efforts have been ongoing for some time. So through processes like the UN Group of Governmental Experts, the UN Open-Ended Working Group, academic efforts like the Oxford Process on International Law Applicable to Cyberspace. So that these are these are questions that have been in the process of being addressed. But I think given what we're seeing in the Ukraine conflict, that you know, we're seeing the role that cyber is playing look looking a lot like the role in some cases that it plays or the kinds of cyber attacks that we see outside armed conflict, these questions are becoming more acute. Like these really are the frequent questions that are coming up in cyberspace. It's not the cyber Pearl Harbors, the cyber 9-11s. 
So it makes more crucial the, the efforts that are already underway to really set up the legal norms and the legal frameworks, the customary international law that uh, governs those kinds of operations. We will unfortunately have to leave the conversation there for now, but Kristen Eikenserer, thank you for coming to join us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and look out for Lawfare's other podcasts, including my other podcast, Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest podcast series on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the partners we left behind, Allies all of which you can find by searching on your favorite podcatcher. Be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at www.patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, as well as special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast was edited by Jen Howell, and our audio engineer was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.